0: Hey, everybody, and welcome into the I Want to Know podcast. I am your host, Greg Jones, and I'm the one leading you on this inquisitive departure into audio wisdom. Today on the show, it's round two of my talk with Dr. Duana C. Welch, D-U-A-N-A. Over Valentine's Day, we had a talk. We talked about love. She is a love doctor, if you will. That's not her official title. And I had so much fun that I, I had a ton more questions to get out. And today, she's indulging me by coming back and spending a bunch of time. And letting me get out all the questions I had that I wasn't able to get to, like I said on the first episode with her, I really enjoy the fact that she takes this from a scientific background. It's not just an opinion. It's not just well, I had my heart broken. Now my relationship expert. It's very much scientific and researched, and and I like it a lot. And she's got a PhD, so. You know, she's smarter than I am. There's, there's at least that much for you. So, if you enjoyed the first one, and I hope you did, I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So many more questions to ask, including a couple from you listeners, which I do love. Please get in your questions. I want to know upon at gmail.com for any of our guests. I always announce them on Facebook and Twitter ahead of time, so you have plenty of time to find out and let me know. Anyways, without further ado, as I told you about a couple months ago, Dr. Duena Welch. As a psychology doctorate, she created Love Science in 2009, is a contributor to Psychology Today and eHarmony, taught psychology at Austin, Texas University, she is the author of Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do, which you can get on our website, I Want com. click on her bio, links are there, and you can also find her at LoveScienceMedia.com and LoveFactually.co. Dwayne how's it going today?
1: <laughs> wow. Thanks for the great setup, Greg. It's going great. It's lovely to be back on your
0: show. It's lovely to have you. Like I mentioned, we, we had to end last time after an hour. We had some hard outs, but I had so many questions left over. We, I loved uh, getting into the science, getting into, you know, we got into some caveman talk as to why we behave the way we do. And that interests me to no end.
1: Well, me too. I think it's really fascinating. Although I have to tell you, some of it's distressing and depressing to me. Some of it I don't like too much, but it is what it is.
0: Yeah. It's not always happy. No. But at least it's always interesting, I think. Um, you know, off the air, we were talking about our podcasts, our blogs, listenership, readership, comments, um, things like that. And uh, one thing we decided is we should get to these these listener questions first. I want you guys engaged. If you have more questions after we talk to Dwayne, you can send them to me. I want to know pod at gmail.com. You can also get them to her. Uh, you can tweet her at Dwayna Welch. She will happily answer your questions, and uh, you can obviously, like I said, get her at lovesciencemedia.com. So let's get right into it. First question comes from listener Shannon. She says, you mentioned in the first interview that jerks do well early on in high school, but the pendulum starts to shift as we're thrust into adulthood. Uh, Less of a question, more than observation. When when you did your first show, uh, a friend who is a jerk to a woman and always did well had been married for a few months and since then they have divorced backing up your theory um that they don't have good relationships okay so that's a question more of a comment but i guess she's saying like uh it's true that what you said she have, uh, her friend that was a jerk to women did well throughout high school and into early college and then got divorced very early on
1: well i i i really appreciate uh that anecdote though because it really is a good example that behaviors that might serve men when they're really young might not be the behaviors that serve them when they're older when when guys are really young there aren't that many ways to differentiate themselves from other guys um, other than physical prowess and showing that they have a razor sharp sense of humor which is sometimes meanly directed at other people but as men get older um the traits that turn out to be really valuable for long-term love are truly kindness and respectfulness. And so being a jerk just doesn't work out very well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It definitely, um, as a younger guy in my early twenties and stuff, being a jerk was really hard for me to do, you know, go to a bar and, you know, my, my buddy was real good at this, go to a bar and be a jerk to girls. And he was always bringing girls home. Mm -hmm. And I was like, dude, how do you, I'm just, I'm, I'm a dick. I just be a dick to these girls. I'm like, But that's weird for me to just to walk up and be like, you know, hey, bitch, want a drink or whatever? Like, that was just weird for me.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. Lately, I've been hearing from men who've been part of the men's rights movement or the pickup artist community who have left those communities because although they acknowledge that these techniques um, of really being not very kind to women – Um, and commoditizing women. Although these techniques succeed in getting some uh, quick sex, these men are finding that they're distressed, first of all, that some women will go for it. And second of all, their respect for women is eroding. And they are feeling disheartened about their chances of having long-term love because they realize that they're practicing relationship skills that are not ultimately leading to what they want and so these are men who are looking to be more genuinely who they are they want to be a nice guy it's funny i i'm teaching a class right now uh recently i've started teaching classes and holding small group sessions on love science where um It's not a science class. It's a relationship advice class that's based on science, and everybody in the class gets a free copy of the book, and then we answer the questions that they have. And one of the guys in a recent class said something along the lines of, I keep getting told I'm too nice. (laughs) And this guy had actually met my husband because I, I teach these classes in my town of Eugene, Oregon. Okay. And this guy had actually met my husband, and one of the things he had said after meeting my husband was, you two have something really special. I want what you have. Um, and your husband is just about the nicest guy on the planet. So I reminded him of that. I said, remember what you said about my husband? And he said, what? And I said that he was just about the nicest guy on the planet. And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, here's the thing. There are women who can't handle a man being nice to them. And those women, to be very blunt, they need therapy. They mm-hmm. have they have issues that are therapeutic issues. There are also women who just aren't into you. And so if a woman isn't into you, how she often knows that is that when you pursue her, it doesn't feel good to her. It feels like she runs, wants to run away from you. So those women, instead of just saying the um, probably wiser thing of, I just don't have enough interest to, to date you. I'm sorry about that.
0: Sure.
1: Um, instead, they they push it back on the guy by saying, you're too nice. You know what? I never said that to my husband because he's not too nice. You can't be too nice. Um, You can be just not attractive to someone. And ultimately, this guy in the class came to understand that the right women find that behavior very alluring. And the women who aren't ever going to be into you, yeah, they don't like it. And it's just important to be who you are, especially if you're a nice person. Be who you are, understanding that you're not everybody's flavor of ice cream.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's not such a bad thing being raised by a good mother. That's right. <laughs> you can be nice to women. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds kind of like the equivalent of a guy who's not interested in a girl and says, well, you're just too hot for me.
1: Yeah, um, exactly. You. It's, or or uh, you're out of my league or um, I don't deserve you. Or, and all of that may be true, by the way. All of that may be true. But the bottom line is it doesn't matter why you're not a match. You're not a match. Just try to brush it off and move on.
0: And it's not easy and it, and it hurts as the guy being told you're not the match, but I think in the end that band-aid rips off a lot cleaner and you it's a lot easier to move on after that
1: it is you know I've never yet in how many years have I been doing this i've been I've been looking at relationship science and helping people apply it to their lives for about fifteen years now um, I've had clients. Over all that time, I still have coaching clients that I Skype with and see at my Eugene, Oregon office. And then uh, I've also been writing that Love Science blog for, I think, seven years now. In all of that time, I've really never had anyone say, I'm so glad that person ghosted on me. I'm so glad they faded out without a word. I'm so (laughs) glad that uh, they uh, blamed me for the reason things ended. I've never heard this. People want a kind, but clear ending. Yes. And there's a very easy way to give that kind, clear ending. All you have to say is, I really appreciate your interest in me. Unfortunately, I don't feel the way that I need to feel for us to go forward, but I thank you again. And that's it. And unless it's a breakup, in which case, you know, you add, um, and I have to break up.
0: Right. Right. But it, it, it's so much easier in the end, and I just I wish people all around the world would catch on to that.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I did a little survey at my own uh, website years ago, and it's in my book. I talk about the results because at the time there weren't any other studies on it, so I thought I would do a small study on it, and I found that there wasn't one person who took my questionnaire who appreciated when they had been left without a, a real closure. They all wanted someone to say something kind followed by a very clear message that this wasn't a good match for them or that they had not developed the feelings that they would have needed to feel to move on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, it, does, it this way of breaking up, it, it's kind, it's clear, it's brief, and it's true. You know, if you felt the way you needed to feel, you would be together.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's also unassailable. Nobody can come back to you and say, no, you don't feel that way. I mean, right. they, they can, but that's not reasonable.
0: Right. I mean, I'm sure they they will, in fact, but uh, that's not the truth. Yeah, you know, I went through uh, a few years ago, well, seven, eight years ago, went through a really bad breakup, and it kind of lingered for a while. Like, oh, are we together? Are we not together? And while at the time it was, you know, every little morsel of we are together was great, looking back as a much smarter, more mature, adjusted male, uh, I wish so badly she would have just said, I'm done. This is over. You know, F you, anything to be, you know, a, a final. And it would have been so much easier looking back.
1: Yeah, rip that band aid off.
0: Please. So, <laughs> uh, all right. Anyways, we have one more question from a listener. This one comes from Mike. And um, I think I can relate to this one. He says, I'm very happily engaged with a baby on the way. You mentioned most of what men do from a procreational standpoint is subconscious. Does that mean that even when uh, we are in the best of relationships, it's okay slash normal to still want to stare at the hot girl in the yoga pants walking down the street?
1: Mike, that's a great question. And, uh, I want to congratulate you on your engagement and on your soon to be parenthood. That's really exciting. Um, evolution doesn't have an off switch to answer your question. And so youth and beauty are always going to look good for you, good to you, even if you are very much in love with your fiance and later when she's your wife, you're very much in love with her. Um, Evolution guides our desires. In fact, my favorite book about evolutionary psychology that's written for the general public is called The Evolution of Desire. It guides what we want. It guides what we want to move toward, but it's not an instinct. So even though it's guiding what we want, it's not as if we have, and I'm not saying you're saying this, but it's it's not as if evolution gives us an excuse to do whatever we want. Sure. So the hot girl in the yoga plants will probably always look great to you. On the other hand, you're making a real commitment. So it's, you know, your responsibility and your wife's responsibility for the two of you to discuss uh, where the boundaries are around that desire.
0: Okay. So would it be smart of him to like, hey, you know, uh, does it bother you when I check out hot girls walking down the street?
1: I'm just going to answer for his wife. Yeah, it bothers her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, because I'm thinking, you know, if, if he's out, uh, let's say he's out grabbing lunch or whatever, he sees a hot girl, he notices, he looks away in his mind, wow, it's a hot girl, and that's the end of it. Uh, you know, nothing, uh, no harm, no foul. If he brings up this conversation of, hey, babe, uh, does this make you mad when I check out the hot girl walking down the street? I mean, I assume immediately she's like, yes, of course it does.
1: Yeah, that's actually a reliably – Irate letter that I've gotten from a lot of women is that they are upset that the man in their life is obviously and clearly scoping out other women in her presence. Guys, we know that we as women know that straight men are attracted to youthful, beautiful women. That's not news to us. However, we need you to keep it under wraps in our presence. So um, you don't even have to ask that question. You can assume that the answer is. Just as, you know, would you want your wife flirting with a very attractive guy in front of you? Most men would say no.
0: Sure. Of course. Most men. Um, All right. So there you go, Mike. Um, I mean, you
1: could, I guess you could have the conversation where you could say in a hypothetical way, um, how open is our relationship? What are the, uh, what are the boundaries that we have? I think that's a good conversation to have. You know, My husband and I have definitely had that conversation. But uh, at the same time, um, unless your boundary that you've discussed includes openly admiring other people's sexiness, uh, probably you can safely assume that that wouldn't be in the top 10 of your partner's favorite behaviors.
0: (laughs) Probably not. All right. Um, Now it's my turn to be selfish and ask some questions. Please do. All right. One of the things you shortly touched upon in one of your answers was that you started off your career in social science. And yes. uh, according to all the things I stalked about you on the internet, you were doing memory or studying memory and aging and, and these sort of social sciences. Why the switch into relationships? How did that yeah, happen? Yeah, so,
1: so I've, I actually have a PhD, but it's not in relationship science. It's my My doctorate is in developmental psychology, and specifically, I spent seven years in graduate school studying how we can improve people's memories at memory abilities as they get older. And uh, I would actually do experiments, controlled experiments, where I would randomly assign men and women of various ages to um, memory training or a control group. And I would see what the efficacy or helpfulness was of that memory training program. And I did that at the University of Florida, and then I moved on to my first professorship at Cal State Fullerton. I was there for six years. I ran the successful memory laboratory while I was there. So I have a research career that is not in what I do now. And what caused me to make the switch Initially, it was a switch that I made only for my own benefit. I didn't intend ever to do anything uh, regarding a career with it. Basically, when I was 27 or 28, so I'm 47 now. This is 19 years ago. Um, I had a a breakup that just devastated me. And, you know, I've been asking myself, why was it so devastating? It really wasn't that much (laughs) different than a few other breakups I'd been through. It really wasn't. But the thing was, sometimes the breakup we're going through is painful, not because of the circumstances of that breakup, but because it comes on the heels of other disappointments and we're just not ready for
0: it. Interesting. I've never thought about it that way.
1: It was, it was kind of cumulative pain. It wasn't really even this guy's fault, you know, it just was what it was. It was just
0: that straw that broke the back.
1: It just was. And I, I was, um, I'm normally a really upbeat, optimistic person just by nature and personality. And this was one of the only times in my life. I remember really going to my apartment after work every day and crying and having a journal to get myself out of a black hole and needing to go to therapy Because I needed to discuss these issues. And um, I decided to go to a bookstore and look for a book that would present factual information about healthy relationships. And there are those books for married people, but there was nothing for people who were dating. Everything about people who were dating was based on opinion. And I didn't want opinion. I'm just not that person. I'm not the person who you can give me your opinion. You can write a book and say, I have a penis, so I know how men think, or I have a vagina, (laughs) so I know how women think. And honestly, a lot of the books out there basically say that. They basically say, you should listen to this because I'm a guy and I know guys. Right. And they're not invariably incorrect in their advice, but... I'm just not the person who can hear advice presented that way. I need a factual backing. And so I started amassing relationship science, first of all, for my own benefit. I never intended to help anybody else with it. I was really being very selfish. I was helping myself. i had had enough pain. I didn't want to go through that anymore. Um, I had tried a lot of things to find the love of my life. All of them had failed. And, uh, I felt like I was absorbing my culture's messages, and those messages weren't helping me. And so um, what happened was my work with, in finding these studies and applying them to my own life, I actually have a journal somewhere um, that, where I detailed everything that I would and would not be doing from henceforward. It was an agreement I made with myself of what what I was going to do based on science. Here's how I was going to act, here's how I wasn't going to act, here's the behavior I was going to accept from someone, here's what I wasn't going to accept from anyone. And I made an agreement with myself and it was very successful. And so one day someone called and said, um, I heard about what you did and I want you to do it for me. And I told her, well, you know, I'm too busy. I'm really busy running this successful memory and aging laboratory. And I, uh, have a child and I, I'm real, I'm too busy for this. And she said, what if I, you know, pay you these, you know, scads of money? And I thought, well, I guess I could be a little less busy. <laughs>
0: so- <laughs> Schedule just opened up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. they're Amazing. Isn't it? So anyway, I think what really moved me though, was she was really sincere in her desire to do this, because, um, I charged just a much, just enough to my clients that, um, people who are, not serious about change, you're not going to pay me. And um, so anyway, uh, we negotiated a price and I started coaching with her and the practice grew. And uh, then when my husband and I had been married for a while, he said, you know, all these things that almost nobody else knows. And I said, well, that's not true. A lot of people know these things. It's just that they are writing for scientific journals, and it's pretty much either staying in the journal or it's getting published in hardcore science books, sometimes science books for the masses, but they're still science books. There's no advice book that's based on science that takes men and women from before they meet until they commit. And he said, you need to write that book. It was really my husband who got me to write the book. Mm -hmm. And um, I resisted it for years. He, He made that suggestion for about five or six years before I finally did it. But in the meantime, I was doing my blog and I was hearing from people all over America, but also all over the world who were really reacting and saying, yeah, that really helps me. That's exactly what I needed to read. And uh, so it eventually turned into the book. And now um, I have a coaching office and I'm here with you today. It's just really evolved over time. So that's how I went from having a career that most people would probably think was kind of dull to sure, a career yeah. that most people probably would think was kind of interesting. But how the heck do you get that career?
0: <laughs> yeah. You, uh, you need to start your own love line.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I feel like that's kind of, um, it's kind of happening because every person who writes to me gets a personalized answer. So if your readers wind up writing to me at, at my Love Science Media website, um, there's a tab called Ask, and you can write to me
0: straight through there.
1: Easy um, enough. Yeah, I, I answer every question I get. I probably answered 50 questions this week, and I didn't give the same answer twice.
0: That's pretty good. No copy and pasting. Yeah. I like it.
1: And um, I do that for free.
0: It's pretty amazing. I mean, uh, free relationship advice from somebody – and I said this on the first show, the, the whole reason I wanted you on the show, I get plenty of people emailing me, hey, you know, I'm a love expert. Or, okay, what makes you a love expert? Like you said, all right, you possess a vagina. Now you know everything about women. But I, <laughs> I, I love the, the science background. I love that it's backed up by stuff. So
1: I'm learning stuff. You know, I mean, I possess a vagina. I don't want to get too personal here, but I do possess one. And the fact is, I learn stuff about female behavior all the time that's completely shocking to me.
0: Really? Like what kind of stuff?
1: Okay. Example, okay, so this past week I had two podcasts that just kind of blew up. That's why I had so many letters from people this last week that had questions. And um, some weeks are slower than that. A few weeks are busier than that because, you know, these people are asking. Keep in mind, if somebody's going to ask you, their detailed personal question, they've probably gone through a lot of hesitation before reaching out to basically, let's face it, a total stranger to ask for her opinion.
0: Probably took a few drafts too.
1: Exactly. So, you know, you don't hear from every single person who has an idle uh, question, but uh, this guy sent me an email that really, I didn't even know what to do with it. I actually put up a, a Facebook post about it because I did not know what to do with this. I didn't know any science on it. Listen to this. So women, here's what I know for sure. A lot of women complain that men no longer court them. Women are complaining that uh, a guy thinks that a text message request to see you tonight is making a date. Hmm. But what if it turns out there are still some men who court women and show a lot of respect toward women and then get ditched right before the date? So here's what's happening to this and apparently quite a few other guys, to read my Facebook feed. okay. This guy is asking... Uh, he meets women, he gets their phone number, he calls them, he asks them on a date for at least four to five days later, which is very respectful. It's not making the caddish assumption that I'm going to drop everything at the last minute and spend time with you. This is really polite. Sure. Yeah. Okay. He's doing the right thing. This is stand up guy here. And uh, this is what women say they want, right? So, Then he calls the day before the actual date or sometimes the day of the date to confirm. And time after time, women ditch him during the confirmation call or they don't answer and they don't show up. Weird. Yes. I mean, possessing a vagina is not helping (laughs) here. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, that's what I said on Facebook. I've got nothing because sometimes science has not addressed a a gap in knowledge. And so I wasn't able to answer his question from a scientific basis. Um, but I was able to find out that there are other guys who are, one of these guys sent me his picture. He's really good looking. I don't understand. He even said that, that um, he and his two best guy friends check in with each other routinely to see if they're being creepy or if they're being stalkerish or if they, uh, you know, are sending up any red flares or red flags that I women ask
0: people that all the time. Or, you know, when I was dating, like by saying this was I was that creepy or is that okay?
1: Yeah. So these guys say, you know, we've checked this out with people who know us and they say it's fine. And I did get some helpful feedback from, from a couple of women. One of the women said that, uh, she has ditched on a guy, but the only time she did it, she had Googled him and found that he had a criminal record. (laughs) Oh no. yeah, she was scared of him. So you know what? I think that's legit. If you're actually fearful, that's legit. And and another woman wrote and said that one time she felt okay about saying yes to a date, but then when the guy called her, her gut just told her he was, he was frightening. And so she um, didn't go on the date. She told him that she wasn't going to be able to go, mm-hmm. and she made some excuse. Um, but public service announcement, folks, going back to something I said earlier, which I do know to be factual because all this stuff I'm saying – earlier about, uh, why don't women, why do women do this is conjecture. What I know for sure is men don't appreciate being left hanging. If you thought you wanted to go on the date and then you changed your mind, you can. And in my opinion, should based on, you know, to the extent we have science on this, you should say, I'm sorry. I, I, at the time I meant yes. And, um, I have, my feelings have just changed about this and I'm not going to be able to Keep our date.
0: Yeah, rip that Band-Aid off, like we said.
1: Rip it off. You know, the guy isn't going to like it. But you know what else he doesn't like? You fading into the ether with no explanation at all.
0: Right. That's, that's so, you know, my, my initial thought when you described his situation was that maybe the women got a little bit of the creeps on that confirmation call. Like, oh, he's real needy.
1: You know, maybe I have been wondering whether, uh, courtship mores, uh, rules of courtship have changed so much that women think it's really bizarre when a man, um, behaves in a respectful manner. And, uh, honestly, I don't know how true that is. Uh, Aziz Nazari, who is not uh, a scientist, but who did work with a scientist in, um, a, so- a sociologist in doing his recent book on dating, um, it did seem that the extent to which we live in our phone worlds has changed the nature of communication between men and women right when they're first meeting. Men are still, as they always have been, more likely to initiate contact. But now it's more likely to be in a text instead of a phone call. And of course, long ago, it would have been in person rather than a phone call. So it's a little less and less personal. It may be that some women uh, have gotten so used to the text message that they feel a little creeped out by what would one generation ago have been considered normal, polite, social engagement. That could be true. But Ansari's work with this sociologist found that actually um, in their focus groups, women really preferred the phone call to the text message. So that doesn't go along with me. what I wound up saying to the guy who wrote to me today about this. Cause I've, now that I've put it out there on Facebook, I'm hearing about it. Uh, he wanted to know, how do I avoid these women? You know, I, I, I not, it's not ruining my life that I make dates with people who don't keep them, but um, but I'd really rather not do that. So how do I avoid these women? What I wound up saying was, Men have both the right and the burden of pursuit. Yes. Um, And it's a right. I mean, a lot of women write, I've had letters, three letters today from women who want to pursue guys. They want to ask for more time together, or they want to say, I love you first, or they want to ask a guy on a date. They want to engage in the pursuit maneuvers. And women are quite heavily penalized even now for doing that. Um, So guys have the right of pursuit, but it's also a great burden because if you pursue, you're the one sticking your neck out. You're the one, therefore, who um, is being rejected. And what I told the guy was, since you have both the burden and the right of pursuit, I can't tell you how to avoid these women. I can just tell you that when a woman does this, although it probably doesn't feel like it at the time, she has just saved you time and effort.
0: And money probably.
1: And money, because you're not going to expend any more energy on someone who has not behaved with the most rudimentary respect,
0: I hope. Yeah, hopefully short of being extremely desperate at that point, you'll just kind of break it off and, well, never talking to her again.
1: Yeah, this guy, uh, the most recent guy that I heard from, he had really good self-esteem. He wasn't angry. He wasn't bitter. He just kind of said, "You know, I'd like to not spend time making plans with women who aren't going to keep my plans. But, you know, okay.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to to look at it. You know, I've I've done some online dating. In fact, my current girlfriend I met online, and there was one girl who I met online. We messaged back and forth, and before I decided to ask her out, I actually called her and said, "You know, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Want to go out? Do whatever it was." And she thanked me for calling her and not being a typical guy and texting her to ask her out.
1: Yeah, that's what uh, the book with that's what Ansari's book found was. Um you know, that women really prefer the phone call. And, and I will say, guys, um, since you do bear the burden of pursuit, if you are pursuing a woman who's unusually beautiful, then you're not the only one pursuing her. Totally. And therefore, you might want to do something that makes you stand out from the other men who are pursuing her. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to place a phone call because most people have resorted to
0: texting now. And just hope that you're not pursuing one of those girls that gets uh, weirded out by the second phone call.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, I think the women who are, uh, th- and this is my opinion. I want to be really clear when I'm just just talking off my own opinion because yeah. I try to stick to science every time I can. But in my opinion, the women who are put off by uh, respectful courtship behavior may not be ready for respectful courtship or they might not just – they might just not be into you. Either way, you're better off behaving more politely and uh, with greater pursuit than doing the reverse because you get an answer really quickly. Women who like you are very turned on by it. Women who don't like you or who don't like nice guys. And again, you don't want a woman who needs you to be mean.
0: Right. Uh, A lot of times she might have some – you know. Daddy issues or something?
1: Well, she, you know, we all have issues, but she she may not be working on them. She may need to work on them more. You want somebody who's going to be a healthy partner in life. And so when you do your part of the human courtship dance, which is you do the pursuit, (laughs) uh, the women who like that and like you will respond more and more favorably over time. And the women who aren't into you or just don't understand healthy relating yet, are going to go away. And that's actually a pretty good litmus for you and eliminates people who probably aren't going to work out anyhow.
0: That makes sense. Um, Speaking of being in good relationships, what are, next question, what are some uh, compatibility, talking is hard for me today, what are some (laughs) compatibility deal breakers that are uh, crippling to relationships that people tend to overlook?
1: You know, the really big one that people overlook, and it's so frustrating. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. I can't talk today either. right? <laughs> uh,
0: Adulting is hard today. It,
1: it's hard today. It's, you know, this is a Saturday. It's hard for me to adult today. So uh, the really big one that people overlook, and I just wish that they didn't, is that we have a window into people's future behavior. And that window is called their past behavior. Literally, the single biggest predictor of what someone is going to do in the future is what they have already done in a past similar situation. So a lot of times when we're getting to know someone, um, that person will reveal Oh, a history that may be unsavory in some way. It may be undesirable in some way. And our tendency is to think, oh, they've revealed it. So they would never do it again. And they would certainly never do it to me. And um, I want to warn you about thinking that way, because the single greatest predictor of what someone's going to do, I mean, the biggest predictor is what they've already done. Interesting. So um, it's called the law of psychology, actually. Okay. Psychology has a few laws, but this is kind of the big, bad granddad of all of them. And um, so statistically, the likeliest outcome is this person's going to repeat the behavior if they're in a similar circumstance. So, for example, I have been emailing with a guy this week. And by the way, if you're thinking, oh, my God, she's talking about her emails. I'm terrified to write to her now. She's going to reveal everything. Notice (laughs) that I haven't revealed anything that would identify anyone. I haven't given enough detail for even the person I was writing with to definitively say, yes, that was me. Yes. So, and that I always do that. And if I do give details on any uh, of my appearances, I always change them slightly so that no one can ever pin the story on the person that it actually relates to. So your secret will be safe with me.
0: And if you're really worried, just give her a fake name.
1: Well, yeah, and I, and I never reveal the real name, um, but unless it's my husband and me,
0: <laughs> poor husband.
1: <laughs> I know. Vic Vic's pretty happy with living an open life. He doesn't mind. He's the person who got me into this. It's kind of his fault, right?
0: Well, that's true. So, <laughs> he deserves it.
1: Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, this guy has been writing with me this week about um, his girlfriend, and the sad thing is that he has waited to consult me until he's very, very deeply in love with her. That makes it really hard to rip the Band-Aid off. It's easy to rip the Uh, Band-Aid off when you don't know each other or you haven't even dated each other yet. Sure. It's much harder when not only is there a big problem, but there's a big problem and you are passionately in love with this person. And so I feel terrible for this guy because imagine that you're in that situation. That's the worst. It's like you're you're asking this person, uh, hey, Duena, What do I do about this? Please tell me that what I do about it is stop worrying because I really love her and I want to stop worrying. What happened is that months and months into their relationship, he found out that she had cheated on her husband. Okay. Okay. Well, he had also heard me say in a different podcast that the best predictor of what she would do in the future is what she did in the past. Obviously. And so he wrote to me because for a couple months now, his gut has been escalating the tension he is feeling about this issue. And he only heard me speak this last week, mind you. What I'm saying is his gut has been speaking to him louder and louder. Mm-hmm. So when he heard the podcast, he was moved to write to me. And um, basically, I didn't give him an answer right off because even though the best predictor of the future is the past, it's the past behavior in a similar circumstance. So I need to know what's the circumstance. Okay. Well, it turns out the circumstances that she had an affair before she married her husband, like during the engagement. Okay. And then she had three more affairs during the marriage. Oh, jeez. And uh, when he looked for signs of remorse that she wouldn't do it again, her reasoning – and she wouldn't answer a bunch of questions that he had, which would have been pertinent. Like how long did the affairs go on? How many years has it been since you've cheated on a partner? She wouldn't answer any of that which she, is not a good sign. She wouldn't
0: answer to the husband or to the new boyfriend, to the new boyfriend. Okay.
1: So, you know, he needs this information and she's not forthcoming with it. Yeah, totally. And then, yeah. And then, um, most damning of all her rash was her rationale for, uh, for having been unfaithful. He said, basically, I love you, but I really am feeling like I can't tell whether you're going to stay faithful to me or not. And, um, she, her rationale, her response was, "Well, um, I was unfaithful to him because I didn't love him anymore, and I love you, so I won't be unfaithful to you." So here's basically what my answer to that was: There are, you know, that saying, "Once a cheater, always a cheater."
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that when you started talking yeah. about past behaviors. So.
1: Yeah, it's not true. It's <laughs> not true. It's it's past behavior in a, a similar circumstance. Most people who have affairs, especially women, if they do have an affair, they do it in the following circumstances and this is someone who's not going to cheat again in all likelihood okay okay the the person who cheated once and never again this is what it looks like. She was in a marriage that steadily became more and more distant, she became extremely lonely. she met someone at work who she didn't usually intend to have an affair with but They steadily grew closer while her marriage became more and more slight, more and more like an icebox. And, uh, she wound up having an affair with this guy. She felt horrible about it. She cut off the affair and, uh, she never did it again. And the reason, and the reason that she never did it again was not because she got caught and it wasn't because she didn't get caught. The reason she never had another affair is she realized that having affairs violates her moral code. Okay. That even if she never get caught, gets caught, she catches herself having the affair. And that knowing that she is doing this does not feel like the good person's seal of approval for her. Notice how different that is. This woman had several affairs. She had them during the engagement. She's asking us to believe that she married someone she didn't love, which in America is very unusual.
0: Yeah, extremely.
1: We, we marry for love here. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it that she married this guy without loving him. She had an affair because she wanted to have an affair. And her rationale for uh, stopping affairs and not having one while she's with her current boyfriend is, I didn't love my husband, but I do love you. Well, this means that if she doesn't feel love for this guy now, she's got carte blanche to do what? Have an affair.
0: Yeah, this sounds like if they have a bad week, you better start checking her phone.
1: Yeah. You know, this is crazy she doesn't have the same value system you know some people have an open relationship but she hasn't had any open relationships. she's been the only one who's had the open relationship
0: right. <laughs> you
1: know, this isn't this is inherently dishonest and she is making excuses here's the person who has an affair once and doesn't ever cheat again they don't make excuses they they take it on the chin they say things like um, you know what? I had an affair and I feel terrible about it. And at the time I told myself X, Y, and Z. But the truth is it violated my moral code and it was the wrong thing to do. And I've never done it again. It's been 10 years since it happened and I'm never going to do it again. And the reason I'm not going to do it again really has very little to do with you or even with me. It has to do with my value system.
0: That to me doesn't sound like a great excuse to never cheat again like, or to trust that they're never going to cheat again. What doesn't? Uh, that is strictly their moral code. To me, that sounds like well, I was kind of mad at myself for doing something that I know that I shouldn't have done, but it you know, but has nothing to do with you. And if you know, you piss me off again, and I get drunk enough, I may you know, repeat.
1: No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that this person has a strong moral code that under no circumstances would they have an affair. Um, so. Uh, a guy that I that I knew, I, he wasn't a client of mine. Um, but this is someone I knew in real life. All our mutual friends were giving him no end of crap because he was <laughs> in a, a terrible marriage, and his wife had said, "You know, I don't care what you do, go have an affair. I don't care what you do." Wow. I mean, yeah, there was no love in that marriage, and they stayed together um, for years when they shouldn't have, and ultimately it did end. But they they lived separate lives under the same roof for. For years. And all of his friends told him to have an affair. His wife told him to have an affair. Um, when he got divorced, his lawyer said, come on, you had affairs, right? And he said, nope, never did. Wow. Everyone said, why didn't you? And he said, because that's not who I am. Okay. That's not who I am is actually a pretty damn good rationale. Yeah. I you, know, get- you know why I don't steal stuff? because it's not who I am sure it's not I don't base whether I'm stealing stuff on whether you left it out and it was unlocked
0: just not who you are
1: this is not who I am but anyway and going I'm kind of rambling now I realize but going back to this idea of the past being a good predictor what you want to look for is someone who has a past you can live with where if they did this behavior again you could tolerate it but in the absence of that if they did something you actually would find intolerable like if they cheated. Most people are not going to tolerate that in their life partner. That makes sense. Um, if they did something like that where you actually would find the behavior intolerable, the signs that you look for to see whether you can move on with this person safely or safer, it's, it's kind of like sex. There's no safe sex. There's just safer sex. Okay. There's, there's no safe being with someone who cheated once. There's just safer being with somebody who cheated once. And uh, so what you would be looking for is they're not proud of that behavior. They have acknowledged that it was their fault. They're not making an endless litany of excuses about it. Because excuses basically say, hey, if those circumstances rose again, I'd just do it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, They are taking it on the chin and accepting, hey, I did this. And their value system says that they don't want to do this. Regardless of the quality of the relationship, because let me tell you, Greg, every long, long relationship hits some snags. Definitely, they all do. So if you're just looking on, you know, if I love you passionately, I won't have an affair. Well, guess what? You know, there come there are times when you don't love someone passionately, and does that mean now all bets are off?
0: You got to get through those bad weeks.
1: Yeah, you got to get through the the tough times and still love the other person anyway. So. Um, and by the other person, I mean your partner, not like other people. Right. <laughs> so, so anyway, the the thing you're really looking for is a repentant attitude with a long history of abstaining from the behavior you don't like. Okay. okay. So for example, let's talk about alcoholism for a minute. That's the big elephant in the living room. Yes. If you are with someone who has... So I I frequently hear from women who say, I just, I can't be with a man who has a history of drug abuse or addiction, that that's a deal breaker for them. Okay. And uh, yet the reason they're writing to me is they acknowledge that they don't want to do that, but someone really attractive who has a history of what drug abuse and addiction, right. alcohol addiction, um, has contacted them and he's super sexy and he wants to go out on a date and she says, what do I do? And basically <laughs> she's saying, do I adhere to my own, what I know about myself? Do I take a little risk and see if I want to get to know him better? And my answer really depends on her. That's what I try to do with people is is take into account the context, the context of their lives and the context of what we know from science. So for example, let's say that... Um, you know from your own past history that this is just too much of a hot-button issue for you. And it is for me, by the way. I couldn't date someone who had uh, a history of um, ongoing insobriety addiction or abuse even if they were long, long, long reformed from that. Because for me, it's too big of an emotional issue for my personal past. I would always be waiting for the other shoe to fall, even if it was never going to fall. That's not going to work for me. So that's not an indictment of this other person's character, by the way. There are many people who get sober and stay sober and who are wonderful mates for other people, but they can't be my mate. Does that make
0: sense? It makes total sense. You're just Uh, You'll spend too much time worrying if they're going to relapse.
1: Yeah, it's just it's it's not something that I personally can do. And so when women write to me and they basically bring that up, I say, "You know what? It's not even important whether he'll do this again or not. The important thing here is you don't have the bandwidth to handle the risk even if the risk is almost nothing. So you need to honor that criterion of yours. Don't date those people." But let's say that You know, it's not a hot-button issue for you, and you're thinking, okay, I don't want to marry somebody who's, you know, addicted, but I can't tell if they're ever going to be addicted again. I don't really have a big personal issue with this. I just don't want to have an issue with this. Are they likely to do it again? Here's how you tell. First of all, your best bet is someone who's never been addicted to anything. Barring that, if this person has had an addiction, you need to ask yourself, what was it an addiction to? Mm And how long have they been sober? And does their sobriety extend to all substances or just that one? Makes sense. Because some people, yeah, they're sober from alcohol, but they immediately switch to something else and don't tell you about that part. Or um, th- the biggest study ever done on alcohol showed that of uh, I think it was – 500 men followed for a period of five years, Uh, 500 men who were uh, acknowledged, medically uh, acknowledged alcoholics, who followed for a period of five years, they were trying to get sober. Something like only 10% of them managed to stay sober for the whole five-year period. Wow. So 85% of drinkers are able to drink responsibly. Um, But the 15% that can't, and it really is medically appearing that there's 15% of people who just can't, Mm -hmm. um, those people, once they've crossed the line from abuse into addiction, the odds that they're going to cross back and stay on the other side of that line are really statistically very small.
0: Hmm. Okay. So
1: you need to ask yourself, am I willing to live with that risk? How long has it been? If it's been 10 years, Well, that's a lot safer than two years, right? Right. But this is a tricky issue for people who are dating. I like people to ask themselves the hard questions before they get deeply involved. Unfortunately, our current cultural climate basically says, ah, come on, Duena, don't be so serious. Really? We're just (laughs) dating. We're just going out. Let's just have some fun. But see, having fun is how we fall in love with people.
0: That's true. And there's a big push to, you know, oh, don't be judgy. Don't judge people. But at the same time, you need to listen to your gut
1: we. there is an institution that exists specifically for judging people so that we can ascertain whether we love them and are a good enough fit with them to be their lifetime partner. And that institution is called dating. Yeah. (laughs) That's what it's for. Dating is a judge fest.
0: That's funny. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, what else are you doing while dating other than deciding if you want to be with this person longer?
1: Yeah, but for... It's interesting. We've kind of gone from um, what I call an arranged marriage culture, not meaning that we're really arrange, having arranged marriages, but that we are arranging our own marriages. And that older culture looked like the following. You meet someone, you ascertain before getting sexually involved, whether they fit your standards
0: mm-hmm.
1: for a mate. If they don't, even if they're really super sexy and attractive, you stop seeing them <laughs> and that that's a really important caveat because unfortunately a whole lot of us believe that if someone is super sexy and attractive we better glom onto them because it's so rare that that happens. It's actually really common the world is contrary to popular belief that, Uh, Most people are ogres, and if you find somebody that you (laughs) love even a little bit, you better hang on to them because it's your only shot. Contrary to popular belief, the world is brimming with sexy, wonderful people who are almost right for you where it will never work out no matter how much in love you are. So the important thing – love is important. I'm not saying love isn't important um, research has confirmed that love is very important. It appears to be a species-wide adaptation for creating the motivation needed to couple and to stay coupled for many years. Hmm. So I would never, ever say marry without love. Love is an adaptation. It helps us. We need it. But I would say um, you can't just marry for that. So what people used to do was have a courtship where they gradually got to know each other. They consummated the relationship at some point sexually and they had asked the t- difficult questions either outright or implicitly before that happened so that they were safe going forward. They had ascertained that they were similar, not just in love. Okay.
0: That they had
1: similar values that they had similar desires in life that they were looking in the same direction in life. And then it was safe for them to fall in love and, and, have sex because they had done the groundwork. What's happening now is what uh, biological anthropologist Helen Fisher is referring to as fast sex and slow love. It's the reverse process. People are currently, according to studies, basically hooking up, having sex, um, having a lot of fun together, becoming deeply emotionally involved, moving in, sometimes even getting married and then asking whether this person is right for me they ask only after it would be excruciatingly agonizing to leave
0: yeah the survey uh, is coming a little too late in that relationship
1: yes and it's really really rough for i mean you know again i get letters frequently from people who have gotten deeply involved in an almost accidental way. Notice that the way courtship is currently happening is pretty accidental. I hook up with you. I fall in love with you. I get deeply involved. I move in and or get married. And then I ask the difficult questions. I had several letters this last week from married men who wanted to ask me the question, should I be with my wife, the mother of my two, three, four children?
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) A little late. You had two, three, four children.
1: Yeah, you've married her like five times the day that you got married and the day each one of those kids was born. You know, it's, um, the commitment's pretty deep at this point. And, you know, uh, statistically, the fallout should you leave is going to be, uh, the burden's going to be very, very great on that guy economically and emotionally. The burden's going to be very great on that woman economically and emotionally. The burden's going to be very great on the children economically and emotionally. The burden's going to be great on all of them socially. It's going to create, uh, a lot of pain that, you know, it's interesting. Studies show that people are blindsided by how painful divorce is. They they want the divorce, but they're blindsided by how, even if the divorce is necessary, how agonizing it is to go through. Huh. And so I basically have written to these guys and said, you are asking me a courtship question. The question, do we belong together, is not a question for when you are married. It is a question for before you are married. You're asking the question really, really late, the right question after you've made the commitment to." Uh, a family, again, from an empirical standpoint, by the way, because I, I will tell you that if I didn't know science, I would just say, hey, everybody, the adults should do what's right for them and the kids will it'll all work out for them. Science sure. does not agree with that assertion uh, with any of it. Um, yeah, I
0: mean, kids grow up better in a home with two parents.
1: And specifically with the two parents who created them. Right. I say that as a woman who's raising a child with a man who didn't create my daughter. You know, it doesn't, marriage doesn't inevitably uh, work out. There are times when people do courtship in the old way of, getting, of knowing what they want and getting to know the person and then getting sexually involved and then making a larger commitment and getting married and feel very certain about one another. And there are some times when even then it doesn't work out. But for most people, most of the time, it really does work out. And so what I wanted to know from these men was, um, what have you already done to fix rather than break your marriage? You're asking me for permission to break your marriage, but I've got no evidence that you've done anything to fix it. Um, stats right now are showing that most couples spend six years in deep unhappiness and feelings of isolation and loneliness before they seek therapy. Six years.
0: How depressing.
1: Yes. And and you could it, and you know what, there are, there are research-validated couples therapy methods that show that these methods are proven to help couples become closer and happier and more in love. There's no reason to wait that long. So, you know, the, neither one of these men indicated that anything had been tried, nothing. It was and, just like, I'm unhappy, I want out.
0: Yeah, and uh, you can tell me I'm wrong, but to me it seems like even just taking the step to go to relationship counseling is a good a step in the right direction and can help save a relationship.
1: Yes, you know, I I basically um, said, before you ask the question, the courtship question, do we belong together, it's important to ask, can I fix this rather than break it? A lot of people are writing on you fixing this now.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: So um, I gave them the link to um, the website for Gottman Method Couples Therapists, because you can find one in your area if you live pretty much anywhere in North America now. And... um, that's the research-validated approach to to therapy. By the way, I'm not a Gottman Method couples therapist. I'm not a therapist of any kind. Uh, I do relationship coaching, and I do relationship coaching for people before they have gotten married as opposed to after. So I would send them to a Gottman Method couples therapist if they're already married because at that point, the issues are a lot deeper, and uh, yes, there are scientifically validated ways to help your relationship. But I really feel like that's a therapy issue. That's not really a
0: consulting or coaching issue. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Before we fall into that rabbit hole all over again, let me move on to a couple of other questions. Sure. Um, So we have a chance to get them out. Um, What are one thing I've, I've heard you talk about in other podcast interviews and seen you write about is attachment styles. What are the four attachment styles?
1: So there are three basic attachment styles, but um, for simplicity's sake, to help people think about it, I have divided it into four. There's, okay. this, there's a secure attachment style, there's an anxious attachment style, and there's a, an avoidant attachment style. And the secure attachment style, um, actually, I could just, if you want, I can read the questionnaire and people can kind of diagnose themselves before we talk about it if you like.
0: Sure, that'd be awesome.
1: Okay, so let me find this actually keep this page in my book bookmarked because, um, a lot of people want to talk about this and I'm glad they do because your attachment style is your habitual way of interacting with your intimate partner. And because it's a habit, because it's a basic way that we interact with a partner, it really, um, colors and shapes and actually causes a lot of the outcomes that we have for better or for worse. So uh, what I want you to do is diagnose yourself as either being an A, a B, a C, or a D. And you may find that you match more than one of these, but I would like you to pick the one that you match the most closely, even if you feel like you're kind of a combination. So here we go. Okay. A, I find it relatively easy to get close to others. I am comfortable depending on them and having them depend on me. I don't often worry about being abandoned or about someone getting too close to me. That's A. Okay. B, I find that others are reluctant to get as close as I would like. I worry that my partner doesn't really love me or won't want to stay with me. I want to merge completely with another person, and this desire sometimes scares people away. C, I'm uncomfortable getting close to others. I want emotional close relationships, but I find it difficult to trust others completely or to depend on them. I worry that I will be hurt if I allow myself to become too close to others. That's C. Okay. D, I'm comfortable without close emotional relationships. It's very important to me to feel independent and self-sufficient, and I prefer not to depend on others or have others depend on me. So that's A, B, C and D.
0: Hmm. I can't uh, I can't decide if I'm A or D.
1: Okay. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. Um so if you're an A, folks who who said you're an A, about 70% of the population fits with A. Okay. Uh this is called the secure attachment style. And basically you have all the advantages. And the reason you have all the advantages is that you naturally do the things that research has found nurture and sustain and build on a great partnership. Uh, you're, for one thing, remarkably low on fear. You find it easy to get close to others. You value interdependence, not independence. you You actually see it as your job both to depend on someone else and for them to depend on you. And you don't see that as a scary or weak thing. And and the D people see that as weak. But A people who are secure see that as natural and right. And uh, of course we rely on each other. That's how life goes. So if, the, if you feel like, yeah, of course that's how it goes, then that's a sign that you're an A. Um, a people don't worry about abandonment. They don't worry about relying on someone too much. They don't rely on someone getting too close to them. They don't rely. They don't worry about um, whether they're going to get uh, too attached and then the person's going to leave. People with an A attachment style actually work out better, even when the relationship ends. You know, all great love hmm. stories end. They all do. Think about it. Yeah. If someone dies, or you know, I mean, that's best case scenario is you love each other till one of you dies, right?
0: That's the ultimate end to the relationship. That's the
1: yeah, but you know, um and and you know, about two thirds of people today, that's the ending that they get. Right now, since about two thousand, our divorce rate is one in three, not fifty fifty. So that means two and three are going on for a full lifetime, but eventually eventually the love story You can love the person, of course, for the rest of your life, but their physical day-to-day presence is eventually gone. And it turns out that people with style A, even when they're crushingly disappointed, still bounce back better than everyone else. They just have the advantages. When they go to a party and their partner flirts with someone else, they're bothered by it, but they're the ones who are able to not make a mountain out of a molehill. They'll say, my feelings are hurt because, you know, you spent half the evening – talking and flirting with Tom and I really felt irrelevant and their partner says, Oh my gosh, I really did do that. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, it's like they have their, they say their piece and they move on. It's healthy. I wish, I wish that were me, but it's not. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) B, so that's secure. A is secure. B is, um, what I found out that I was about 10% of the population fits into style B. B is the anxious people. Okay. You know, the word anxiety means worry. Right. Or or too much concern. And so that's the hallmark. Notice the description says that I want to merge completely with another person. And this sometimes scares partners away. The idea here is that B's want what A's have. They want to feel secure. They want to trust. They want full love. They want to have a partner who's at the very center of their lives. But they're scared that they love you more than you love them.
0: Okay, that makes sense.
1: And that fear has ramifications. Um, one of the ramifications of being scared that you love another person more than they love you is that you're hypervigilant for signs that this other person is about to abandon you, which creates problems. Consider it if you are dating someone who's a style B and you just go over and talk to someone who's attractive and your style B partner, who's already convinced that you're going to leave anyway, sees this as, you oh, now you're definitely leaving. Do you see how that can be a problem?
0: Yeah. You know, I've I've dated a style B that was uh, almost violent when it came to that sort of thing. And we not so lovingly refer to her as crazy.
1: Yeah. So um, unfortunately, at the extreme end of a style B attachment, uh, people with an anxious attachment style can engage in stalking.
0: Mm-hmm. They
1: can engage in uh, violent behavior when in a jealous rage. They can be hypervigilant and uh, have a jealousy issue that's really them, and it's not about their partner. If you wonder if you are jealous for a reason, I'm not saying that everybody who's jealous is irrational.
0: Sure. I mean, that's I mean a the very fact normal is, fear.
1: Yeah. If you are being cheated on the, and you detect that there are signs that your partner is in fact emotionally withdrawing from you and investing more and more in someone else or is physically withdrawing from you or is physically present for you but you suspect strongly is also physically, sexually attentive to someone else. You need to explore that and find out if it's reality. But what I'm saying is that for a style B person, there's almost no amount of reassurance that's truly reassuring to them sometimes. They need a lot of reassurance.
0: Yeah, this this person I referred to one time... Uh, woke up, said that she had a dream that I had cheated on her, and then was mad at me for two days.
1: Yeah, that's that's a style. That's a pretty hefty dose of B there. You
0: right. Know? Yeah. There was yeah. there was a whole lot of B going on there.
1: There was a whole lot of B going on, and and um, I'm cringing. I mean, I did never do that, but uh, I did things like um, convince myself that someone wasn't interested in me, even though he had called me five times that day. I mean, that's just. <laughs> it's not rational yeah you know it's it's not rational any of the styles can be irrational I mean there are definitely a's who kind of um implicitly trust people and find out that they have an untrustworthy partner. Blind trust is not well-placed. People need to earn your trust. But A's are very open to that. And B's just, they have a really hard time trusting that you really love them. And some B's will even go so far as to do the one thing that will probably get you dumped. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's as if they're thinking, and probably this is unconscious, but it's the behavior pattern looks like this. It's as if they're thinking, you're going to dump me. I love you more than you love me, and so I have to prepare for the day when you dump me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to line up this backup partner so that when you dump me, at least I'm not all alone. Well, guess what? Mm. Then you get caught with the backup partner, i.e. you're cheating, and then you really get dumped. Yeah. Yeah. So bees actually are the most likely to cheat, although I want to emphasize that in the research on cheating um, – personality and attachment style play a smaller role always than virtually any aspect of the environment that scientists have identified as important. Huh. Okay. So it's not a huge predictor of cheating, but if you're just going on attachment style, it's the most likely to cheat. Makes sense. Okay. So uh, then there's style C and D and style C and D are both what are called avoidant. And I hate that word um, avoidant because that word to me indicates that someone is Actively trying not to have someone in their lives. And that's not at all what's happening.
0: Sure.
1: People with style and D are Cs and D, they're both really trying to have someone in their life. They really are. But they're doing it in a way that keeps their partners on the periphery of their lives. Think about um, your life as a as a circle. You're in the very middle of that circle, mm-hmm. and then there are concentric circles spinning out further and further away from you a uh, style a and b person the secure people and the the anxious people what they really want is an intimate partner who is at the very center of that circle with them
0: that makes so sense.
1: so they want real genuine intimacy which is defined as the gradual uh, revealing of all aspects of yourself without fearing loss of identity. That's what they want. They really want that. They okay. want someone at the core of their life, not the periphery. For example, my husband's an A and I used to be a B, although I think he's kind of changed me to being more of an A. <laughs> um, I, it, I have not one shred of anxiety about him ever. So I think I've really moved into his it. firm A territory.
0: And would you say that's uh, compliments to him or compliments to you?
1: It's both. Uh, Here in a minute, if you want, we can talk about how to change your style if you don't like it. And I I really worked on changing my style when I I realized what I was doing. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm on the train to crazy town. I don't want to do this. I don't (laughs) want to be that girl. Uh, I want to be an A. I'm going to work toward it. But I also did something that the bees of the world need to do. I picked an A. I learned what A looks like, and I picked an A. I intentionally chose this man. He chose me first, but I chose him back partly because he was steady on and secure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, so this, the A's and the B's, their partner ideally is at the very core of their life. And, for example, my husband and I recently moved to Eugene, Oregon, from Austin, Texas. And uh, it didn't occur to us, either one of us, to... Unilaterally announce that we would be moving, or to say, "I'm going here. Um, let me know if you want to come along." Okay. Uh, but that does occur to C's and D's. Those kinds of thoughts do occur to people who have C and D attachment styles because avoidant people and C's and D's are both avoidant. Avoidant people have a core relationship. Usually, I mean, evolution pretty got pretty much got rid of the people who don't want relating.
0: Okay. That makes okay.
1: Sense. It, pretty much those people, really it's hard to find someone who just doesn't want any level of relationship. The question with attachment style is not whether you're going to get into a relationship. It's what you're going to do while you're there. So what the avoidants do while they're there is um, if they're C's, they hold their partner at arm's length because they feel fearful of being needed too much or needing the other person too much. They're not really worried that they won't. You know the, the the hallmark of the anxious person is they're they're worried that the other person will never love them back quite enough.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: C's aren't worried about that. In fact, C's are afraid you love them too much. They worry about being depended on too much. They uh, feel like they're not going to be able to live up to your expectations. Um, your increasing attention and your increasing intimacy feels like ankle weights. It can make them hyperventilate. It can make them feel suffocated. Uh, it's scary. That's why it's called avoidant fearful, style C.
0: Mm-hmm. Makes sense.
1: And um, style D is avoidant also, but they're avoidant dismissive. They're just comfortable without close emotional relationships. They want relationships, but they want those relationships firmly on the periphery of their lives. Their partners are not neither expected nor permitted to make intense emotional demands, and, and they are perceived by t- style D as demands. Like something a style a or b would say, Oh yes, please, a style D will see as an ankle weight and something to be avoided because they they value independence and they see interdependence as weak and undesirable,
0: okay, so after all that, I would say I'm more in the a category,
1: yeah, you don't talking to you, it's funny because I've been interviewed on on attachment style a few times now. And the very first person to interview me was clearly a style D and diagnosed himself as such. And one of the examples that he gave about himself was um, that uh, he had moved from, I can't remember which country it was, but he had moved from one continent to another continent. Okay. And basically what he said to his girlfriend of several years was, well, I'm moving. So it's been a nice relationship. Uh, <laughs> And for him, the freedom to move, the freedom to live life on his terms without needing to consider uh, an emotional partner and the freedom to keep his secrets to himself and not have to reveal everything, that was more important to him than – having someone central to his life. And in fact, it was so important that he actively did not want someone central in his life, which didn't mean he didn't want anyone. He always would get a girlfriend where he was living and he would have that girlfriend for a long time. He just didn't allow her to be in the center of his existence, emotional, physical, or in any other way. She might even live with him. It's just that he came and went as he pleased and he wasn't beholden to her in the way that A's and B's would think would be a normal relating style. So, I hope that makes it a little clearer that A's and B's really both agree. Hey, I want this person at the very center of my emotional life. They'll be this person will be a heavy consideration in every decision that I make. Whereas uh, styles C and D really want to hold that relationship at arm's length. It's not that they don't want a relationship; it's that the relationship they have is not actually truly intimate.
0: They just they can't get close enough.
1: Well, or won't.
0: Or won't get close enough, yeah.
1: I I don't want to say can't because I think, you know, these men and women that I've been talking to for years, they could do it if it were a really high priority but I don't sense that it is a really high priority most of the time. Um, Change is very, very difficult for them and and frankly, I've never seen a style D change ever because why would you? I mean, changing yourself is really hard and if you truly believe, quote, I am comfortable without close emotional relationships, it is very important to me to feel independent and self-sufficient, I Prefer not to depend on others or have others depend on me end quote. if that is actually you, why in the hell would you change yourself
0: that's true you you're pretty self sufficient
1: yeah I, and I'm not even arguing that you should yeah, you know you're fine with your style go with it it's fine <laughs> yeah um what I wish everyone would understand though something that that I came to late in the science game is the the big picture here science has shown really clearly over you know, this this research has been going on for longer than a human generation now. Science has shown really clearly that people vary widely in their capacity to love and be loved. The people with style A and B have a tremendous ca- capacity to love and be loved.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: People with style C's and D's have a very low capacity and de- desire to love and be loved. Those capacities are not immutable. You c- again, there are things you can do to change them. But you're not going to change somebody else's capacity. They are going to change their
0: capacity. Yeah, it's like right? sending someone to rehab.
1: Yeah, it's you know they have to do. They have to go along for the ride. You can't just say I'm just going to love you enough that you your whole attachment style changes.
0: Yeah, let me ask you this. Uh-huh. Um, tell me if this makes sense. I was in a long-term relationship, five or six years with someone who I sort of brought up earlier about bad breakup. This is not the B person necessarily. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. The B person, it sounds like you probably weren't together all that long. That
0: wasn't that long, no. Uh, <laughs> that that, that <laughs> found itself an ending. Uh, this other person I was with, we we're, were together five or six years. Uh, she cheated on me. It, it ended. But throughout the cheating and ending process, I think I really went from this A person to a definite B and then maybe even transition to a C for a while afterwards and then back to A. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Or is that totally so, wrong? Uh, no. We can – so it used to be thought that attachment style was like personality, that it never changed. But here's the thing. Personality, while usually stable across long periods of time and uh, between situations – which is the hallmark of your personality, right? If it changes according to the situation, is it really your personality?
0: True.
1: Um, even with something like personality, which used to be considered by scientists to be uh, immutable, more recent longitudinal studies are showing that the big five personality traits, which are conscientiousness, openness to experience, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, those are the big five personality traits. Okay. Those five personality traits... Um, do change over time, at least somewhat for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. and similarly, it was thought that your attachment style didn't change because there were studies looking at people from toddlerhood on. You, you develop your attachment style as a baby to your primary caregiver, and of course we don't give toddlers these questions, right? right. Uh, but you look at their behavior. How do they act with their primary caregiver? And it's very clear some toddlers behave in a really secure way with their caregiver, for example, showing joy when their caregiver enters the room and showing sadness when she leaves, Um being willing to explore while she is physically present rather than clinging to her or ignoring her. These are secure babies. They're also anxious and avoidant babies. Hmm. And um, it turns out that about 70% of young college-age adults seem to have the same attachment style they were diagnosed with as toddlers, which means that 30% did change, right? So. The odds are you have the same attachment style that you had as a toddler and the odds are that you have the same attachment style that your mother has.
0: Now I need to talk to my mom.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But here's the thing. Even if I were able to diagnose you like, Greg, I'm going to shrink you right now. Even though I'm not a shrink, I'm going to shrink you and I'm going to diagnose why do you have these attached? Why did you have one attachment style and then another? Even if I could find out why, it really doesn't fix it. Sure. I I think I know... I think I was a style A until my early 20s. And then I was a style B because um, I loved with a free and open heart, with no fear of reprisal, and with absolute trust in my partner when I was a very young adult. And that partner, who I had known almost all my life, I mean, my mother had taught him fifth grade. I'd known him a long, long time. Wow. Um, We had gotten secretly engaged, and we were going to announce to our families and our friends at Christmas that we were getting married. And just before Christmas, Uh, He broke up with me and he didn't say why, but in my heart, I knew he wasn't coming back. And so I tried to move on with my life. And two months later, he showed up with another woman wearing my engagement ring. Wow. See, I actually was still a really secure A, even when he broke up. I didn't know why he broke up. I just, I knew he wasn't coming back, but I did what A's do. I still felt basically okay about myself and about relationships. Yeah. When I found out that not only had he left me for another woman, but that he had betrayed me by trying to publicly humiliate me and show her around with my engagement ring, I lost faith in myself.
0: Yeah, this, this hits uh, close to home.
1: Yes, I lost. You know, that's like I thought back to when I was a 10 year old and thought, was I wrong about him? I've known this this man since he was a boy, a really young boy. How could I be so wrong? And if I'm wrong about him, I must be wrong about me and about everybody else I know. It really rocked my world. I now felt Same that when here. I loved when I loved someone, that uh, that I love them. But how could I know that they really love me? Yeah. You see, sometimes there's a life circumstance that changes someone's attachment style for the worse. Sometimes there's a life circumstance that changes it for the better. I have definitely gotten letters from people who started life as a B who got together with an A and that steady on warm glow of love, affection, attention, and dependable, I am here for you no matter what, totally worked its magic and this person joined their partner in being an A. It can work both ways.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I felt a lot of the same that, that you describe. I mean, she this girl cheated on me. You know, We were together for years. She cheated on me, left me with for the guy that she cheated on me with. And it went from being an A where I was very trusty, never thought anything like that would happen to like, I, I, I thought I was a good person at reading other people. And then all of a sudden I felt like I had zero ability to read other, other people and situations. And, and it was, it was really weird. I was very B for a while for a couple of years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so my B style went on right up until I met my husband and actually my B style, um, directly created the implosion of a few relationships because I I needed so much. I was like a bottomless pit of need. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there has been a perfume that sold very well called Obsession, but to my knowledge, there never has been one called Desperation. (laughs) It's not attractive, you know? And so I needed to work on that about myself. So I'd like to talk a little bit about, okay, you want to change to become more secure. How do you do that? If you are an A person, you're already secure and while hypothetically you can date anyone, I want you to date an A or a B. Science shows that your best odds for continuing to remain an A and for having a happy life is to be with someone who's either already secure and the 70% of the human population. I mean, your odds are pretty good here. Or to get together with one, that one in 10 shot of being with a style B person because the style B people want what you are selling. And if sense. you're if you're willing to offer them... Uh, reassurances, they are willing to be loved and to love you in return and put you at the center of their lives. So A's and B's work out really great. A's and A's work out really great. If you're a B person, get an A person, period. Do not even (laughs) think about anyone else. And I want to warn you about this because unfortunately, research shows that B's tend to be attracted to the C's and the D's of the world. The C's and the D's of the world are avoidant. They are never letting you into the core center area of their lives. In all statistical odds, you are not going to be brought into the inner circle. So learn to recognize and uh, force your attraction for, if you must, an A. And the reason I say that is A's sometimes come across to B's as not being forthcoming enough with a lot of reassurance. The irony is that C's and D's, they're never going to bring you into the center of their lives but at the same time, they are human, and they need human connection. And so what they tend to do is they reel you in fast, set the hook, and then let you dangle.
0: Hmm, okay.
1: Well, bees need you to reel them in fast. They need a lot of reassurance. So they get all this reassurance from the Cs and the Ds really quickly, and then they're left to dangle. And it feels horrible, but the bees keep thinking, but it was there before, so it'll be there again. Right. Here's what an A looks like. It's, it's like no drama.
0: It's the way when I like you're, it.
1: Yeah, that's what I like, too. But but it doesn't always feel sexy to style B people. The no drama thing sometimes doesn't feel like there's enough reassurance going on at the very beginning.
0: Okay.
1: A style A person, how they will court you or react to you is that they will show a clear and consistent interest. If you're a guy and you're trying to, to court a style A woman – you're going to need to call her. You're going to need to make the arrangements. You are the one with the burden and the right to pursuit. So you're going to have to pursue her. You pursue her, but the thing is a style A woman seems glad that you're pursuing her. She is excited by the plans you have made. She has a smile in her voice when she answers the phone. She may not return your text message for a few hours because, you know what, a lot of women are hard to get when you first meet them. But hard to get doesn't mean bitchy. She's happy when she does return your text message. Mm -hmm. She puts smiley faces on it. She puts thumbs up. She tells you she's so glad to hear from you. She does not do the I'm a bitch impersonation. (laughs) Okay, she's respectful, even if elusive. Does that make sense? Somewhat. If you are a a woman and you are looking to be courted by a style, a man, he is going to call you. He's going to text you. He's going to make plans ahead of time. He's not going to suddenly fade out and then show up again the style a man the secure man is steady on he's not like hyper on because let me tell you when I met my husband he's he's a classic a he called me he wrote to me we went out but he didn't try to put the moves on me on our first date he didn't try on our second date he gave me a hug and a kiss on the cheek it was weeks before we went any further than that and it wasn't just that I was being sexually elusive it's that he had identified me as a real strong possibility for his life partner, and he had the rest of his life to make love to me. He knew he was attracted to me, and we could hold hands, and we could hug, and we could do a little kissing, and he didn't feel any need to rush it because he was a style A, and this is all going to work out. He's not anxious about it. He doesn't need to nail that deal down right, <laughs> right away. Right. See what I'm saying? So that's just to give you an example. For those of you who've never seen what a style, I do a lot of my coaching around this issue because if you are a style B, C, or D, it can be really difficult to know, well, what do these behaviors look like in the, in the wild, you know? (laughs) So let's say that, um, so if you're, you're an A, B with an A or B, if you're a B, you need to be with an A because another B is often going to make you too anxious. And a C or D is going to exacerbate your tendencies to feel unlovable.
0: Probably make you a little crazy.
1: It's going to, yeah, it feels really crazy. It really does. I've done that. Don't want to do it again. (laughs) Um, So if you're a style C or a D, you need to either change yourself or you need to get really comfortable with being with another person who wants to be at the periphery of your life. Don't get together with bees. You like bees. Bees are, you know, they're a stoke to your ego, but don't get together with bees because you know, the stokes your ego comes at a really high cost. And the high cost is they're always asking for stuff you don't want to give. And that really is annoying and unattractive Mm -hmm. and makes you feel scared and offended and put out a lot of the time. And that's no way to live your life. So if you want to have someone, but you don't want to have a person who's all the way at the core of your life, Find another person who's like that. Live your I've known people who did this by the way. I've known two C's who got together and got married and you know they're this is working for them. It's not a marriage that I want because I'm a B or an A now. but it's a marriage that they want. Basically they live in the same house. They're happy with the sex life that they have, which is, you know, in their case, not terribly frequent, but that's okay with them. And they, uh, by the way, the C's and the D's of the world are the least likely to cheat. They hardly want you. They certainly don't want other people to add to the mix.
0: <laughs> wow, okay.
1: And, and this couple that I'm thinking of, um, they're both in business. They make plans without consulting the other one. They're both fine with that. They see their partnership as something that's there in the background of their lives, and they like that a lot, but they don't see it as the core of their lives. And because they agree on it, it works.
0: Huh. Well, I guess as long as it works for them.
1: Yeah, it works for them. You know, again, do I want that relationship? No, but they have a right to it, and they enjoy it, and they like it. So let's say that you're a C or a D, and you've just decided, I or or a B, you, I don't like this attachment style. I want to change it. Other than picking somebody who's, and and I advise everyone to pick someone who's either at their level or higher than their level of emotional availability. Never pick someone lower than your own level. Never, never, never. Because you're going to be feeling like you're clingy and desperate and reeking.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Never pick someone with less capacity to love and be intimate than you have. Okay. Beyond that, how you will change yourself voluntarily is what I call the notice and redirect. This is a experimentally proven cognitive behavioral therapy technique to change lots of things. Attachment style is what I'm mapping it onto, but this works for lots of things um, that you might want to change about yourself. And it's just a two-step process. Notice, redirect, notice, redirect. Here's what you do. Notice when you're having an uncomfortable feeling in your relationship or about your relationship, and then redirect your thinking to align with reality. So let's say you're style C, and you notice that You are feeling um, nervous that this person has asked to spend another two hours with you. Mm -hmm. Okay? Just notice it. Don't beat yourself up. Don't say, oh my God, I'm hopeless. (laughs) Because it turns out that when we speak unkindly to ourselves and we create shame, we actually stay stuck. We don't change very much. So when I say notice, I really mean notice. I don't mean self-flagellate here. Okay. Okay. Okay, so notice that you're having a thought that is making you uncomfortable, such as, um, I notice that I'm feeling fearful that this guy wants to spend another two hours with me. And then you need to redirect your thinking to align with reality. Well, what if it turns out that we met for a one-hour coffee date and he's now suggesting that we go on a two-hour hike and spend the rest of the afternoon together? I just met him. I'm a female. I'm young. I could be, you know, this could be a sexual predator and I'm feeling scared. <laughs> well, that could be real, okay? Yeah, that's true. I'm not saying ignore reality. I'm saying redirect to align with reality. On the other hand, let's say that this is your boyfriend and that you've actually got some level of commitment to each other and... uh That you are feeling like, oh, my God, he wants two more hours. Either you're not into him.
0: That's what it sounds like.
1: Which is fine. If you're not into him, break up, move on. Or this is you being avoidant again. And you have to suss out which is which, you know. Um, For example, an exercise that I've done with some avoidant clients is who brought up that very thing. So, in the real world, do you know other people who spend an extra couple hours with each other on a weekend, and that just seems normal? And they say, "Well, yeah, no, that's not abnormal." (laughs) Or if if one of my clients catches themselves thinking, "So and so is an ankle weight," I say, "Well, examine that thought. Are they an ankle weight? Or is is their presence actually stopping you from doing what you need and want to do in your life?" Sure. And if so, maybe this is the wrong partner. But if not, Maybe it's just your avoidant attachment style asserting itself. So you just notice and redirect, notice and redirect, notice and redirect. Over a long, long period of time, that can really help. Um, I have never yet gotten a letter from someone who has successfully changed their style C or D attachment style. Again, the D people value independence so much that they don't see the sense of bringing somebody all the way to the middle of their lives Uh, So they're not going to do the work to change as far as I've seen so far. And I want to emphasize this is my observation. It's not science. Um, I've, I've just never seen it. doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I just haven't seen it. Style C people I really think would have a pretty good shot at changing. But it's C people by definition are avoidant slash fearful. The fear is really intense. The closer a partner gets, the more fear they
0: have. Is it the fear that makes them want to change their style as opposed to a D not wanting to change?
1: No, what makes them want to change their style is that the, the hallmark of a style C or uh, avoidant slash fearful style is that they really do want an attachment, to a, a sincere attachment. It's just their fear gets in the way. So their motivation for changing or wanting to change is that they really do want an intimate relationship. I most okay. often hear from women who are style C. I don't usually, when I, when I hear from men about this, it's usually style D men who are fine with it and just say, yeah, I'm totally fine with it. When I hear <laughs> from, it's usually women who are style C who say, you know, I, I want an intimate partnership, but every time someone starts to get close to me, I feel like pushing them away. Or I feel like one woman who I think is quoted in my book actually said, whenever someone tries to give me a hug, my first reaction is to want to push them away. Interesting. But she wanted to want to hug them. Does that make sense? Yeah. She wants to want something new. And so um, the notice and redirect can really help. I do that with some clients. Uh, I think it's something that a cognitive behavioral therapist would be very good at doing with people also, Mm -hmm. which is a an experimentally proven type of therapy.
0: Yeah. Let me um, switch topics, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of questions that I want to get out. I know we are, our time is running short. Mm-hmm. So two questions I have for you is one, um, as I said, you write for eHarmony. You've written some articles for them. How has the internet changed dating styles? And we briefed on it a little bit about you know texting instead of calling. Um, but how has it changed styles? And is it for better or for worse?
1: Those are really great questions. And I think that da- some of the data are still out. And in fact, I think that this is going to be a question that scientists will be gathering data on an ongoing basis, and there will be a morphing of the answer to this question. Mm -hmm. What I can tell you for sure right now is that um, from about 2000 to 2008, there was uh, a large representative survey in other words, a scientifically conducted survey, not like me putting out something on the Internet, hey, what do you think about this, but a real survey uh-huh. and of uh, where people met and how happy they were. And um, the reason I emphasize that it's a scientific survey is that a scientifically conducted survey with, ran- with uh, random sampling has only a 5% chance of being wrong. Hmm. Okay. It's got a 95% chance that this survey actually is giving us an answer that reflects what is happening to most people most of the time in our country.
0: Okay. Like so, this
1: that. is a great survey. It's called the Harris Survey, and it was conducted by lead scientist John Cassiopo. And I got to interview Dr. Cassiopo um, for an article that I was writing for Psychology Today. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, it was. And he gave me the data set, he gave me all the questionnaires. He gave me uh, access to the analyses, the whole shebang. He wow. gave it all to me to let me look at it because I was very skeptical of the outcome because eHarmony paid for the survey. Oh, okay. And Dr. Cassiopo has uh, probably the world's best scientific reputation for science on loneliness. Hmm. Yeah, he's a loneliness researcher. There's Sounds people- depressing. Well, you yeah, know, I mean, it- he <laughs> did it's. It. I think that given the health, what we now know about the health uh, consequences of loneliness and the happiness consequences, obviously, uh, it's really an important topic of study. But he had been commissioned by eHarmony to do this study, and he had been given free reign to act without their permission. In other words, they weren't overseeing his methodology or his analyses or his publication of the results. Okay. But he wasn't able to get a grant from the government to do this because, you know, the government's got other stuff to do. They don't always care that much about our love lives, frankly. So sometimes you have to go with private funding. Well, I went into this with, you know, a somewhat skeptical mind thinking, oh, this, you know, these results are just going to be crap. But they weren't. The science was very well conducted. And what it showed was that from that time period of around 2000 to 2008, a third of Americans met their spouse online. That is a third of all people who'd gotten married in that time married someone they met online that's pretty good. It's really high. I mean, you know a decade yeah. before that, the number one way to to um, meet people was still through friends and family okay in fact, it still kind of is the number one way to meet people, but it's it's losing ground rapidly to the internet, yeah. Uh, you know, there, there used to be kind of a, a taint of stench on you if you used the newspaper, or the internet to find your partner and now it's just normal. Of course. Yeah. Everybody uses the internet.
0: Yeah. No big deal anymore.
1: Yeah. So a third of the people, but what really blew me away was that they also looked at where you met and how that correlated with how happy you were with your marriage partner. And it turned out people who met online were statistically significantly happier than people who met any other way.
0: Hmm. Is that because they got to know each other before meeting?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. They were happier than the people who met at church. They were happier than the people who met through friends and family. They were happier than all the standard ways you think of meeting someone. Um, So I asked Dr. Cassiope about this, and he said, well, first of all, you have to remember that statistically statistically significant does not mean um, a real-world huge difference one of the things I had said to him was, you know, when you have a sample size this large, virtually any difference reaches statistical significance. This is not a very big difference. And he said, yes, that's true. But he said, if you wanted to hedge all the odds in your favor for lifetime happiness, one of the things you would, based on this study, want to do is strongly consider finding someone online. And one of the reasons, and the reasons for this, of course, we don't know for sure. These are educated guesses are, uh, first of all, when you meet someone online, you have immediately leaped over several hurdles that in the real world you normally haven't leaped over quite yet when you first meet. First of all, you are pretty sure that you're both single. You're pretty sure you're both actually looking for a a partner. Some of these websites, you're pretty sure you're looking for a marriage partner. It's not just a hookup.
0: Unless you're on Ashley Madison.
1: (laughs) Well, then you're pretty sure that the person you're talking to is a robot. (laughs) So as science would have it, uh, analyses of what was going on there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've leaped over these hurdles. Whereas if you met in the frozen foods aisle, you don't know any of these things.
0: Yeah, you just know she likes frozen peas.
1: That's all you know. Yeah. So uh, Cassiopeia also also pointed me to some research that had shown that um, in online interactions between anonymous individuals, they were actually more self-disclosing than they were in real life. Interesting. Uh, somehow, even though people feel more anonymous on the internet, yeah, you can see that on Facebook. People say terrible things they'd never say in person. Oh, now, yeah. feel really personal things you know, in a public post <laughs> that they would not be comfortable saying maybe in a room with 10 of their close family and friends. So people feel more anonymized and they reveal more. And so in effect, what you said is correct. People are, in a, in a way, getting to know each other better on the internet. I want to emphasize the advantage was slight. Uh, but it was there. It was real.
0: Hmm. That's that's good to know as someone who uh, met his current girlfriend on the Internet.
1: Yeah, I met my current husband on the Internet.
0: See, there you go. And I remember, <laughs> you know, I've told people in the past, you know, a few years ago, like, oh, I met a different girl. You know, this girl on the Internet It's like, oh, that's weird. It's like it's <laughs> we didn't meet on the, uh, you know, lost connections part of Craigslist like we met <laughs> on a dating site. It's It's fine. We're not creepers.
1: Exactly. And,
0: and now it's just like, oh, you met her online? Yeah, so did I. Like, it's it's very normal.
1: It yeah. Seems. Yeah, absolutely. The the stigma has really disappeared, which I'm thrilled to see.
0: Yeah. And it really seems to, not to go off on another tangent, but it really seemed to have dropped off. It went from, ew, you met her online to, yeah, me too. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just very, one more thing yeah all right well last question before we wrap things up and this has nothing to do with what we just talked about um, oh, yeah. but you did briefly mention something about uh, being open in your relationship with uh, you know with Mike's question you know checking out other girls and you should have this conversation um, can open relationships work and how do they work
1: So I'm gonna tell you right off the bat that this is not my area of expertise you'll notice that my book title is love factually right. And proven steps for my wish to I do my kind of sweet spot is research that deals with people who want to make a permanent, lasting commitment that is monogamous to another person. So I'm not an expert in this. Having said that, I used to be a professor at Cal State Fullerton, where there was a researcher named Bill Merrillich, who was somewhat of an expert on uh, open relationships. And he let me talk to him. This has been a few years ago now, but he allowed me to talk to him about this. And what Dr. Merilich said was that uh, the research showed that uh, relationships where the doors were open, that, that is, they had negotiated some level of sexual availability to people other than the primary partner, um, that in studies these research, these relationships tended to resolve in one of two ways. Within a few years, these couples either tended to return to monogamy or they tended to break up. So in other words, it was relatively rare for an open relationship to remain open as a permanent lifestyle choice, if that makes sense.
0: That makes total sense. I always wondered how that could sustain itself or, you know, the length of, say, you're together forever, how it would sustain itself that way.
1: Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I've got to say I have certainly heard from people who've had and heard of people who have had long-term marriages with kids and they're, you know, to anybody from the outside, the relationship looks like, you know, your ordinary hetero relationship. And that the husband and wife have negotiated very different terms than that and that they've made it work for a really long time. So, you know, um, I'm not saying it can't work. Uh, I'm not an expert in this. I'm just repeating what one of my colleagues told me from research that he had read uh, because it's not my primary interest. Um, But I'm not going to say it can't work. I'm just going to say it appears that for most people it's a departure from monogamy or serial monogamy it is not an ultimate replacement for it
0: gotcha yeah i've just you know always been intrigued by people that were able to pull that off and just to me you know as, as much as every guy has that uh threesome fantasy yeah, i very firmly know that that would never work
1: yeah i you know i just don't share i don't share well <laughs>
0: <laughs> just how you're raised you don't share well
1: i uh, just yeah i don't share well
0: yeah, makes sense. I was so. probably a biter as a father. <laughs> Stay away from my toys. <laughs> and now my husband. I like it. All right, everybody. I I hope you've enjoyed the uh, the extended version, the EP of the interview that happened a couple of months ago. Thank you again to Duena for, for spending even more time with me. This time, if you guys want to check her out, lovesciencemedia.com, lovefactually.co. And of course, as we mentioned, the book, Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do. There's links on my website, on her website. Please ask her some questions. As we heard today, she likes getting your questions and answering them. So, uh, And she answers them in great length and detail, which is nice. So, Dwayne, thank you so much for spending a ton more time with me today.
1: Greg, it was entirely my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Thank you so much again to Dr. Duana Welch. I'm so glad she took the time to come back, indulge me in my questions and answer everything. It's so easy to fall down that rabbit hole with her. You know, we start talking about one thing and then it leads to the next, the next, the next. And I just, I love it so much. I, loved it. I love science. I love relationship. I love human interaction. It's so interesting to me. So I hope you guys found this as interesting as I did. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget to check her out. Lovesciencemedia.com and lovefactually.co. As she said, she loves your questions. So go to lovesciencemedia.com and click on that ask tab and send her a question you can also tweet with her at duena welch d-u-a-n-a w-e-l-c-h all one word and look if you want to pick up love factually 10 proven steps from My wish do i do the link is on the web page i want to know show.com click on her bio everything you need to know about her and her books is right there so in the meantime and in between time i think that's all i have for you today don't forget to keep sending in your feedback, your questions, your suggestions, I want to know pod at gmail.com. Give us the thumbs up on Facebook, Facebook.com slash I want to know show. Follow the show on Twitter at I want to know show. And don't forget to tell your friends how awesome the show is. Keep spreading that word. So, on that note, good night, everybody.